0: Hi, this is Dave Summers and welcome to Ame Edgewise. Alex Rosenblatt is a technology ethnographer. She works as a researcher and interdisciplinary scholar at the Data and Society Research Institute in New York City. Her most recent and prize-winning work is available in the International Journal of Communications, the Columbia Law Review, the Policy and Internet Journal, and Surveillance and Society. Her research is also featured in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, MIT Technology Review, Vice, Quartz, Wired, Time, Technology Review, Haise, New Scientist, The Guardian, and CTV. She's an occasional contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Motherboard, Slate, The Atlantic, and Pacific Standard. What do you do in your spare time? Just joking. We're here talking to her about her very cool book, entitled Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Business Work. Alex, welcome to AMA Edgewise.
1: Thank you so much for having me, David.
0: This is neat stuff, but I have to admit I need a little context. What is a technology ethnographer?
1: An ethnographer is somebody who observes culture, usually through participant observation, and then they write about it. It's both a noun and a verb. What I do is examine the impact of the culture of technology on work and employment.
0: So there are different types of ethnographers, and you happen to be a technology ethnographer. That is
1: where my focus is. That's correct.
0: Very cool. And we talked a little bit before the microphones were on about the Data Society. Can you give us kind of a little post-it note size? What is the Data Society?
1: Well, it's a research institute full of recovering academics who like to do publicly engaging work in addition to their academic scholarship. And they tend to focus on the social, ethical, legal impact of emerging technologies. And so it's really looking at how tech is impacting and affecting people in society. And when I say tech, I really mean internet technologies for the most part. Give us the backstory
0: on the book. I find that these uh, making of documentaries or news stories are almost more interesting than the finished work. Give Mm -hmm. us a little backstory on the book. How did did this come about?
1: Well, around 2014, I was looking at Uber's possibilities as part of the general excitement over the gig economy and the prospect of work that could be more flexible, more independent, could be coordinated on a massive scale through internet platforms, and they seem to resolve a social inequity problem. There's a real problem when it comes to the taxi industry, which has to do with discrimination. If you're a black man, it's hard to hail a cab. They might pass you right by and go on to the nearest white person. And Uber had this policy of blind passenger acceptance. You don't know who's getting in your car before you're there, and you click, you know, I've arrived, and the passenger's ready to get in. And so this policy seemed like a really interesting solution to a long-standing social inequity. As I started to look more deeply into it, along with my research partner at the time, Luke Stark, we found that it was one of many policies that actually limited how much control and power drivers had over their income, even though they were being billed as entrepreneurs who could make full and informed decisions. You know, the absence of knowing where who your passenger was, was also coupled with the absence of knowing where they were going, sure. which would be a great way to like reduce another problem of, you know, discriminatory uh, destinations, but like discriminating against certain destinations, which often has a a racial connotation to it. But it also meant that drivers had no idea if they were going to make $2 or $30. Right.
0: Some people see the term exploit. I only come up with the the word exploit because it's actually featured as a, a subtitle of one of your chapter titles there. Some people see this term exploit as a not so great thing, especially when tied to human workers. Don't get me wrong. Historically, people have exploited opportunities. In warfare, you exploit the enemy's weaknesses, you know what I mean? So I don't want to paint it with too negative a a brush, but within the context of how you use the word, your definition of exploit... Was it your intention to sort of use the positive or not so positive definition or perspective of that word when tied to human workers? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? What are your thoughts on this?
1: I think the question of why exploitation isn't always a good thing is very interesting. I would say that when it comes to labor relations, the term exploit tends to have a more negative connotation. But when I talk about it in the book, I'm not just talking about how drivers might be getting the short end of the stick. It's also how you know Uber's narrative was crafted in a way to sort of convince the public and media and policymakers that what it was offering was only good and remarkably so. That it was going to be a force for positive innovation and change in society and that It should not be constricted or held back by regulations that might stifle its potential for innovation.
0: Yeah, how can you keep down all this goodness, you know? How can you suppress this wonderful thing? Well,
1: it's very persuasive, and it's one of those persuasive politics that is coupled with a service that works super well. Everybody as a consumer, for the most part, they love the service. They love that they can get a ride on demand and it takes them from A to B. And for the most part, it works pretty well. It doesn't work so well for everybody. You know, if you're disabled, it might be really difficult for you to get an Uber to come pick you up and take you where you need to go. And a lot of cities have come in and said, well, you know, we do need to impose fingerprint-based background checks, for example, on all drivers, just as we would for typical licensed cab driver. And the companies will come in, not just Uber, but also Lyft, for example, will come into Austin and say, like, no way. You try and impose these rules, fairly reasonable rules. And we'll pull out. And not only that, we're going to take up a social cause to pair it with our positive innovation. We're going to say we're here to fight for racial equity," because people of color have been disproportionately affected by criminal records and fingerprint based background checks will just affect people of color more negatively and so we can't have that and so you reach this point where the possibility to persuade the public that your politics yeah. are better and that your innovation shouldn't be constrained is sure. so interesting because you simultaneously as a technology company make the claim that you have no politics. Your technology is neutral. It just might reflect the marketplace. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. just makes connections. It's just like a credit card transaction that they're processing.
0: It's so ripe for spin, right?
1: It really is. It's been amazing to see.
0: In your mind, does Uber represent the future of most corporations and their relationship to their customers slash passengers and their employees slash contractors?
1: I'd say what Uber has brought, even if Uber disappeared tomorrow as a company, I think the innovation they've brought is here to stay. And I think the mainstay of that is algorithmic management. You know, it's algorithms that actually enact the rules of how drivers have to behave on the job. Of course, Uber sets those rules and those policies, whether implicit or explicit, but it's algorithms that can actually manage hundreds of thousands of independent contractors and help standardize how they behave on the job. Mm That's super interesting because when you look at the case of Uber, you can sort of see where when drivers face harassment on the job and they turn to a robotic manager to help resolve a problem, they really can't get very far. There's a certain point at which the algorithms that that create really efficient systems of management can also be the point where the rubber hits the road because it's absurd to turn to a bot when you're about to report an instance of harassment. But at the same time, when we look at the case of Uber drivers, we can see what the stakes are because their livelihoods are on the line. And we have a deep appreciation in American society for earning your living mm-hmm. and that being a fundamentally important thing that people have to have respect for. But if you take a look back for a second, Uber didn't just come up with its own algorithms as a culture. Of course, they did come up with their own algorithms, but algorithms are not unique to Uber. Mm-hmm. We unveil the fact that all of these platforms like Facebook and Google all have these algorithms that manage our behaviors and how we interact on platforms. But the power of that algorithmic manager on Facebook, you know, when it controls your newsfeed is obscured. It's not clear that your newsfeed doesn't reflect your friend's newsfeed or that there isn't sort of an objective source for the news that you're provided with. And the really interesting thing to me about Uber is not just how it poses a model for work relations, but how it actually reflects how consumers are managed by algorithms across vast areas of society as it is increasingly dominated by the culture of technology. Sure.
0: And more and more people unconsciously are willing to give up more privacy for more convenience, you know? That's That's interesting. One of my stupid catchphrases that I use every now and then, kind of tongue-in-cheek, is everything would be okay if people weren't involved. And th- this is that case. Uh, my next question here, which really has to do with wonderful little story you used in the final chapter, you kick it off with this Uber driver named Cole, who has, let's just say, a, a, an unusual uh, slash stressful passenger-customer encounter, uh, one which he probably would have opted out of had he known how it would play out. Now, customers and passengers, they really are the wild card here, aren't they? No? I mean, both now and in the future?
1: They are. There's a limited amount of information you know. a driver will have on a passenger before they agree to pick them up. It'll be like their star rating. And so if you have a low rating as a passenger, that's a red flag for drivers because they have so little other information about you mm-hmm. and because they tend to understand how important the rating system is. So the drivers rate the
0: passengers as well. drivers
1: rate the passengers as well. But when passengers rate drivers, they may be, and they were for years, not very aware of how much the rating system could impact the driver. Mm -hmm. So if a driver fell below, say, a 4.6 stars out of 5, they might be deactivated, which is a technology word that means suspended or fired you know it's it's meant to sound a little bit more like a machine did it like there's no ma- human manager who made mm-hmm. the call the language of technology has really sort of infiltrated the relations of employment but drivers understand that if they get bad ratings it, it hurts them and they think about it it's a, it's a force of like psychological management as well because they're navigating extenuating circumstances on the ground that are invisible to an algorithmic boss, but they have sure. to make sure the passenger is like, happy, even though they might be asking for unreasonable things. And it can put them in a bind. You know, If you show up and you, if you boarded an Uber and they show up and they accept the ride and they're there waiting for you to get in and you try and get more passengers in the car than there are seatbelts, the driver's going, oh, this is against the law. Why should I be at risk for a ticket? And at the same time, if the trip's already started because you got there and you started the trip, the passenger has the power to rate you. So an unhappy passenger might end up docking you points that could affect your ability to earn in future. And so the one interesting facet of this system of algorithmic management is that the customers also take on the role of a middle manager in some ways. I mean, they're evaluating drivers and Uber tabulates the ratings and gives drivers sort of an average that determines whether or not they're eligible for other jobs in the future. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to a passenger, you don't know who you're dealing with. You really have to make like really snap judgment calls. And what's interesting about Uber system is that there's no employee handbook when you get mm-hmm. started. You might see a little video, maybe like fifteen minutes long. Sure. But there's a lot of information that's withheld or sort of obscured. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is their employment classification. Drivers are classified by Uber and other white tail companies as independent contractors. contractors sure. Exactly. And yet they have to standardize the behavior of hundreds of thousands of drivers at any given time. And they have a massive churn rate. Mm-hmm. I think after six months on the job, it's something like 68% of drivers drop off. Mm-hmm. And that's that means you have to quickly onboard their, their word for it or hire drivers onto your platform. So you have this double bind. One is you're having a constant slew of new drivers. And the second is you have to communicate the rules in a way that doesn't look like you're telling them how to behave on the job. Otherwise, you might... Have a lawsuit on on your hands. You
0: run into the whole independent contractors. You You do.
1: And so what drivers see is not you have to perform the following behaviors. Instead, they get a little notice that might say, you know, riders give five-star ratings to drivers who perform the following listicle of behavior. And that serves as an enforcement no, saying, tool. saying,
0: just saying. Exactly. You know? It's an enforcement tool for the Maybe
1: suggestions like... and recommendations of your algorithm right. manager. And that's, right. you know, when you're using like a GPS navigation system sure. like Google Maps and you get a, a recommendation for a faster route, you don't, you don't have to follow it. You know, you might. And even if it's a bit deceptive, even if it sends you on a longer route in the end or it's experimenting on you. You're getting a free service, but when your manager gives you misinformation about where your next ride might be, you run into a different set of challenges. Sure. So when it comes to a driver like Cole, you know, he shows up, it's his like first week on the job, and he has a passenger who's really harassing him, yeah. you know, wants wants him to hang out, is starting to yell at him, really aggressive. Pretty bizarre. <laughs> wants to have a hug that's a little yeah, too long at the strange. end. Yeah, invites him home, invites him into his home to maybe smoke pot, and yeah. it's just the driver's going like... Okay, I'm new at this. How do I handle this? And this is a driver who had a lot of experience in customer service, and his instincts were to try and maintain the passenger's calm as best he could in an aggressive situation. And so he's, ta- he's making all of these efforts, you know, much more than you think goes into sure. the service when you're thinking, this guy's just going to take me from A to B. Mm-hmm. And when the hug lasts too long and Cole has to sort of gently push his passenger away, mm-hmm. he's going like, Okay, so yeah, what next? And right. where do you turn to? Sure. And yeah. the only support you have through Uber for the most part of the time was you could write to a customer service agent called a community sure. support representative. could be somebody located in the Philippines. They've effectively created email versions of call centers sure. to receive your complaints. But when it comes to safety, having a robotic response that just says, hi, I'm, thank you so much for your input is but, just absurd.
0: But Cole... I'm given to understand either founded or co-founded this like bulletin board or this place, this community Mm -hmm. where drivers could go to share their learnings, their fears, their worries, their best practices, their stories in an effort to sort of like, what can I learn from this? You know, don't make the same mistake I made or here's something that worked for me kind of thing. Absolutely. But, But that's all informal.
1: It's totally informal. It's so fascinating because there's no workplace where drivers all gather around a central building you're looking at drivers who have formed and forged a workplace culture beyond a workplace and where they've gone is online they it's are using community. It's a
0: they're, com- community of practice they're building communities of
1: practice and it's so interesting because they're using the same silicon valley technologies that have sort of developed into the uber model of work You know, to also forge the same, like, older parts of the workplace, just in new spaces. And so if you're gathering in Facebook groups or dedicated websites, you are comparing notes with other drivers, and you may not even be in the same city. There are local groups online, but there's also groups that might have, like, 16,000 drivers in them, and one guy's from Ohio, and there's a lady from Dallas.
0: How does Uber feel about this?
1: They haven't told me their feelings mm. on this. But mm. it's certainly a place that's very interesting because in these communities online, and community is a bit of a tricky word because they're really about information sharing. I'm using sharing. very
0: generic. Yeah.
1: Way. They're really information sharing spaces. And in technology-mediated work, you have evidence of things that happen to you on the job mm. in a way where you would have to sort of sneak a camera into a factory there's a, there's to figure out. Yeah. yeah, there's a trail. You've got screenshots of what your algorithm manager told you. They said, go find this surge pricing area and you'll mm-hmm. earn three times as much and you arrive and it turns out the surge is gone by that time you're sure. frustrated or maybe you sure. have like coal a uh, challenge with a passenger and you're like how do i deal with this yeah. who, who do i report it to some drivers have found that even when they sort of communicate to what they call uber's robots that they have faced uh, you know uh, harassment of some kind the robots might say well okay we won't match you with this passenger again and the driver might be sitting there going like but you're going to match the harassing passenger with other drivers? Like, that seems unfair. And so they're online, they're comparing notes, they're figuring out the best ways of practice, they're figuring out whether to chase the surge, for example. Mm -hmm. Everyone's, the veteran advice among driver communities is, like, do not chase the surge, but new drivers are new to the game, and it takes them months to figure out, you know, what the real rules are. And that's because there's not an employee handbook. There's these suggestions and some of them come with rewards. Some of them come with penalties. You might be deactivated if you fail to follow some of the recommendations.
0: Interesting. And again, I come back to my edict, you know, everything would be okay if people weren't involved. Uber is pouring tons of money into technology driven cars, removing the human driver component altogether. And that must be a wonderful end state for them that removes a gigantic, crazy, chaotic variable.
1: Well, in theory, but what I've often seen is that Uber will, when engulfed in scandal, suddenly launch what? flying scandal? cars or <laughs> you know, a new... St- morally persuasive cause that they'll ally with and so there's this way in which like yes there is work towards technology Mm -hmm. and they've certainly made significant efforts in trying to develop self-driving cars but at the same time that can be a distraction from the fact that you do have all of these labor problems and the idea is i think part of it is that well if we're going to have self-driving cars in the near future why do we even have to be concerned with these like petty labor squabbles exactly And the thing is, whether or not Uber develops self-driving cars, the Uber model for employment is going to scale way beyond that. Because any industry who can look towards that employment model and say, I can divorce myself from the costs of employees and still get people who do and work pretty much the way that I want in a standardized way, like, that seems cool.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. We here at the AMA pride ourselves on sort of being the go-to resource, the campfire that a, a new manager or an aspiring leader can come to to learn the ropes, you know, and these people have been maybe perhaps they've been great individual contributors. They've done great work as individuals, and now they're given a team, and they're given a project and a budget, and the world is a different place. What's in this book? for a new manager or an aspiring leader?
1: I would say that one of the lessons we can learn just from the driver experience is how much drivers value autonomy and flexibility on the job, which is promoted by Uber as one of the reasons for their business model. I would say what drivers often learn is that there are significant constraints on their independence when it comes down to it, because if they don't behave in particular ways, you know, they risk being fired. But even though in the Uber model, Uber creates economic opportunities for drivers and might also limit their prospects, Mm -hmm. I think what we can take away from their qualitative experience is that they might even prefer having an algorithmic manager enact the rules because it's preferable to having a human boss leaning over your shoulder and sort of yelling at you, which many people have experienced. And so there's something in the way that drivers have been like, yeah, okay, you know, having an automated Boss is not so bad, except when something goes wrong. Yeah. And that's something new managers could also take from that. There's both how can I communicate more clearly? How can I work to improve the Uber model and build trust, even though we're having like, there's nothing wrong with sending an email right. that tells you what to do. The right. problem is, when,
0: hey, how about a face to face conversation? How cool is that?
1: Or that there's that as well. <laughs> and eventually they added a phone number that drivers right. could call, but exactly. it took many years. And there's a way in which I think Managers can learn from the fact that, okay, you know, we can totally deploy technologies to try and enact some of the rules of the system. Let's make it easier on everybody. You know, you don't need someone telling everyone what to do. At the same time, I think what managers can learn from the Uber driver experience is that you need to have a trusted resource at the other end of the line Mm -hmm. when something goes wrong. And that's probably the most important lesson that we can learn from Uber's model, that although you can use technology to create massive new efficiencies in employment relations, you also need to retain the human touch mm-hmm. and really have someone there who's responsive, who can listen, who can act as a, a safeguard mm-hmm. against some of what we don't know about technology.
0: We've been speaking to Alex Rosenblatt talking about her book, Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work. Cool stuff. Good Thank you so the book. much. Thank you. Follow American Management Association on Twitter to learn more about upcoming free programs, the latest news, management insights, and special offers. You can follow us at A-M-A-N-E-T. That's A-M-A-N-E-T. Hope to tweet to you real soon. feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org.